our musicians. Um, they put a lot of time and effort into leading us every Sunday and uh, genuinely appreciate uh, the work that they do to serve us so well. We can open up to Ephesians chapter 1. No surprise there, right? Been here a while. Ephesians chapter 1. I've never acted before. I think probably kindergarten was the last time I was actually in a play. Um, when I was in high school, I think it was my senior year actually, the drama teacher at my school was a really close friend of the family and uh, we'd known her for a long time and uh, she asked me to be in the school play that year to, I think, be one of the main parts in it. And uh, I said, no thanks, but I will do the lights for the play. That was about as close as I was willing to get to being on stage. Maybe some of you have acted before, maybe you uh, enjoy acting, maybe some of you don't, never even thought about it, have no desire at all to participate in, uh, in that particular art form. But this morning, I want each of us to think of all of creation as a giant stage. And the drama of history is playing out on that stage. The first act of that drama was the six days of creation, everything was put into motion, and the play, the, the drama, has continually unfolded from that first act until now, and it'll continue to unfold until the final act is, is performed. And you and I are part of that play. Being alive for the short life that we are given means that you and I are actually on stage in that drama, in that play. You are on stage at this very moment. Your whole life is, is taking place on the stage of the drama that is unfolding. One of my favorite authors described creation this way, and, and here's what he said specifically about it, and this is so good, I wanted to read it to you. Clear your throat and open your eyes. You are on stage. The lights are on. It's only natural if you're sweating because this isn't make-believe. This is theater for keeps. Yes, it is a massive stage, and there are millions of others on stage with you. Yes, you can try to shake the fright, by blending in, but it won't work. You have the creator God's full attention. As much attention as he ever gave Napoleon, or Churchill, or Moses, or billions of others who have lived and died unknown, or a grain of sand, or one spike on one snowflake. You are spoken. You are seen. It is your turn to participate in creation. Like a kindergartner shoved out from behind the curtain during his first play, you might not know which scene you are in or what comes next, but God is far less patronizing than we are. You are his art. And when we start to think about our lives that way, as participating in God's drama put there by him for a specific purpose, there are two errors we can fall into. One of those errors is, I think, the one that comes most naturally to most of us, and it is to think that I am the star of the show. This whole thing is about me. And maybe you're sitting there thinking, well, I mean, I don't really think that. I'm not a world leader. I'm not famous. 
I don't have lots of Instagram followers, and so I know I'm not the star. But what we do is we think in my little corner of the stage, we think that we're the star. We think that we're the main attraction. We think we're the center of attention. And so because we think we're the center of attention, then we start to act as if God's theater production is all about us, and it's meant for my personal satisfaction and for my happiness, and it's meant for me to get whatever I can out of this life because I'm the star of the show. The other actors actually exist for me and for what I want out of this life that, I'm, that I have. And so that's one error on one side, but I think the other error, maybe some of you are, per, like a percep- are uh, prone to, is to assume not that we're the center of the stage, but that God doesn't actually have any interest in us at all because the stage is so big and there are so many people on it, the sheer number of people involved in this play, that God doesn't really even notice me. What I do doesn't really matter. I'm not significant and that God has much bigger concerns that he's worried about. And obviously both of those are in error. And I think the amazing thing about God is he is so big and so infinite that every person in this room has his rapt attention this morning. He's so big that he sees even the tiniest detail. And every moment of every day, you are holding his full interest and attention. And at the same time, that is true, but at the same time, you and I are a minuscule, tiny, almost insignificant part of this play that is going on. It's a massive production, and God is moving and guiding the entire thing toward the final act under his loving and sovereign hand. And so the same author I quoted earlier says says it this way about our perspective on how we fit into this play. Swell with pride, for you are tiny and given much. And I think the first part of the book of Ephesians really balances both of those errors really well and gives us a helpful perspective on how we should think about our role in God's plan and in his purposes. It's a corrective to both of those concerns that we slip into. So the last few weeks, we've been talking about God's election of us to salvation, about his adoption of us, about his redemption and forgiveness of sins that we have received. We have been brought into his family. We've received all these amazing benefits. And the takeaway from that is, is that you and I matter. We are we're significant to God. He loves us and has set his affection on us. And yet, at the same time, we are not the center of this drama. We're not the main thing. In fact, he doesn't even redeem us ultimately for us. He has much bigger purposes at play. Our lives fit within a much bigger and broader story. And that's the story that I want to talk about this morning from the rest of, or from Ephesians 1, 9 through 12. One of the beauties of God's grace to us is that he has actually told us about this drama that is unfolding, and he's given us the big picture of this drama and what we need to know about it. And that's what we're going to see in verses 9 through 12. So these verses fit into verses 3 to 14 in a very significant way. Verses 3 to 14, if you'll remember, are one giant sentence, 202 words 
And this sentence is giving us the benefits that we have in Christ. Because of our salvation, here's what God has done on our, ben- our, for our, on our behalf, for our benefit. And this whole sentence is calling us to praise the triune God for what we have received in Christ. And these benefits that he's describing here to us are not just a laundry list to check off and say, sweet, I've received that. We offer those things back to him in praise, and they're instructive to us. They tell us about our identity. Here's who you are now in Christ. And these benefits come to us in three parts. And we've started looking at the second part. We've got the first one. We started looking at the second one, and we'll finish that second one this morning. But each of these three parts is focused on the work of a particular member of the triune God. So the first one of these is that we are adopted into God's family in verses 4 through 6. And then we started looking last week at the second one, we are redeemed by the Son's work. So we looked at his work last week in verses 7 and 8. And now this week, we're going to talk about why we are redeemed. What is all of that heading toward? Why are your sins forgiven? And it's for, for his purposes. So the, the redemption that we have, the forgiveness of sins that we have, is all by his grace, and it's for his purpose. So look down at verses 9 through 12, and I want to show you how these verses really are focused on God's will, his purpose, his plan, his counsel, what he's accomplishing through our salvation. I mean, just kind of glance through the verses with me. You can see in verse 9, he says, it's according to the mystery of his will, according to his purpose. Look at the beginning of verse 10. It's a plan for the fullness, the completion of time. Look at verse 11. You've been predestined. That's talking about planning in advance, orchestrating in advance. At the end of verse 11, it's the counsel of his will. He works all things, right? And so all of this tells us that we're learning about God's ultimate purpose. We're learning about this production, this drama that he's unfolding and what he's aiming for in having this drama go forth and having it happen. And so I want you to think, if we keep with that kind of idea of planning a play or planning a drama or a concert or something like that, if you were doing that, there were several things you would want to do to make sure that your, your play was successful, right? So first of all, you would want people to know that you were having a play, right? You'd want people to know that there was a production taking place, and you would want people to attend it and be interested in it. In other words, you would want to get the word out. This is going to happen. The second thing you would want to do is you would want to set up a practice schedule, and you would want to plan the practices leading up to opening night, and you would want to plan how many nights you're going to have this play. It's going to take place, and so you would want to organize the whole thing. You'd want to to get everything together, provide oversight to it. The third thing you would want to do is you would want to know When you write this play, how's it going to end? What's the final act going to be like? How is it all going to be summed up? What's it all leading toward? And then the last thing you would want to do is you would want to make sure each of the actors knows the part that they play. You'd want to give them their lines. And you would want to make sure that they knew what this whole thing was heading toward and how it would be be accomplished and how it would finish. So they know the part they're playing. Now, each of those four things that you would want to do to get your play ready, I think those are described here in verses 9 through 12. As God unfolds the drama of his purposes in creation, he's going to follow each of those four things that you would want to do in his work as a director over all of creation. And so we'll see each of those four parts this morning. 
First of all, when God is accomplishing his purposes, he has not left us out on knowing what's happening. He has gotten the word out. He has revealed what he's going to do. He's invited us to enjoy his production, to enjoy the drama that he's putting on, and he's invited us to participate in it as we, as we know what's going on. Look at verse 9. This is according to his grace. He's continuing the thought from verses 7 and 8 here, but he is making known to us the mystery of his will. Now, it's interesting there that he calls his will a mystery, the mystery of his will. He's making known to us, he's revealing, he's getting the word out about the mystery of his will. And in the Bible, when this word mystery is used, it's talking about something that was previously unclear, it was previously unknown. Of course, God knew it, and he was working behind the scenes to accomplish it. But now, in the New Testament, that has become clear. It's something that now is made known. So it's unknown before, that's the mysterious aspect of it, and now it's fully known, and it's revealed to us. And so he is making known to us the mystery of his will. And of course, all of that is by his grace, that we even are able to know what he is doing. So how specifically has he gone public? What's the method he has used to go public with the mystery of his will, with what he's doing, with what he's hoping to accomplish? Look at verse 9. According to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. So the mystery of his will is something that is according to his ultimate plan. It has to do with his ultimate plan. And it's something that he has set forth or he has made known and he has revealed in Jesus Christ. And so what this is like, it's like the the people in the Old Testament, they kind of knew what was going on, right? They, They had some sense of God's purposes of what he was trying to accomplish, but they didn't know very clearly. It's like they were acting on the stage, but they didn't know exactly what this drama was ultimately about or what it was headed toward. Their part wasn't abundantly clear. And then it's like right in the middle of the drama, the main actor steps onto stage. And once he steps onto stage, everything becomes clear. The mystery is revealed. In fact, now all the previous acts that had unfolded Now those become clear too. Oh, we see what the first act was about. We see what all these things that were done in the Old Testament are about. And now Jesus Christ has stepped onto stage and everything makes sense. Everything was leading to the main actor coming onto the stage. And when he comes onto stage, now we see God's oversight of the whole thing. Look at verse 10. As a plan for the fullness of time. So Christ comes onto the scene as the main actor, and now we start to see exactly what God is accomplishing. We see that this has to do, his work has to do with the entirety of God's purposes for all of creation. Have you ever seen maybe a movie where it jumps back and forth between different groups of people, different scenes, and at first you don't really know how they relate to one another? And so you're trying to figure this thing out. That doesn't seem to be any connection between this group over here, and this group over here. But you know that ultimately, as you keep watching the movie, those two are going to come together, and everything's going to tie together, and you'll understand what was going on. And so sometimes it's helpful to go back and re-watch the movie. 
Well, think about all of the various threads of individuals that have ever existed on earth. Everyone who has ever lived, all their actions, all of their hopes, all of their dreams, every conversation, everything that has taken place on earth. When verse 10 says that through Christ, we understand the plan that God has for the fullness of time, this is picturing God as a master director. And he's overseeing all of this activity, everything that is taking place, and he's leading it all toward a specific end. Everything fits into his plan. And verse 10 tells us that that plan is for the fullness of time. It's when time is no more, when time is complete, it has reached its end, it is filled up completely. When, when that happens, there will come a point of convergence where all the threads will make sense and they will all come together. We don't know exactly when that will be, but that's the final act that everything is leading toward. And all of that Everything will lead toward one magnificent point and magnificent end, and that's what Paul tells us in the rest of verse 10. Here is the plan for the fullness of time. To unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So when we read here that that the plan, the ultimate end of everything, the, the drama is leading toward uniting all things in Christ, what does that mean? Well, the word unite here means to to sum up the main point. It brings everything together. It's the same word that's used here in Romans 13. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. All of these seem like unique commandments, kind of separate from one another. And any other commandment are summed up. That's the word. They're summed up. They're united in this word. Here's the main point. Here's the summary. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The principle of love puts all of these under one heading and unites them all together. And now you understand what's behind all of these commandments. That's what's happening in Romans 13. Well, in Ephesians 1.10, when Paul says that God's purpose is to unite or sum up everything in Christ, that's the main point of all of creation. Everything is going to be brought together, and Jesus is the main point. He is the focal point. Everything has existed through him and for him, according to Colossians 1. And so think about this. Think big picture. What does this look like? Well, God created the universe as a place of of harmony, right? It was a place where everything was supposed to work in a certain way. It was a place of goodness. But when mankind sinned, and rebelled against God, that harmony was broken. And so creation has experienced the tragic results of the fall into sin. Disharmony, disunity. And creation has experienced that because of human beings. We are kind of the problem. We are the center of the problem. But if you follow the logic here of Ephesians chapter 1, then what Paul is saying is that our redemption... God adopting us into his family, bringing us into his family, forgiving our sins, that is leading to the point through Christ where everything will get put back together, where everything will come to see Christ as the main point. He's the one that brings restoration, and he brings a a rightness and a goodness back to all of creation. It's through him. 
Romans 8 describes this. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So our redemption accomplished in Christ leads to, Christ is the main point, he sums everything up, he brings everything back together in restoration, and everything is set in order with Jesus Christ as the head and as the authority and as the king. One author put it this way, what the Bible shows us is that God saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this salvation is the primary and central piece of the whole redemptive puzzle, the big picture of which God reveals, of which reveals that God is saving the world through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is so that Jesus will be preeminent in our hearts, but also so that he will be seen as preeminent in the universe, so that our hearts will be at home in the universe. So he's bringing restoration. He's bringing everything back together. But what you can't think about this, uniting all things in him, is that this means that everyone will eventually be saved. That's not what this is describing here. What this actually means is that everything will find its place and everything will fit in under the authority and the the rule of Jesus Christ. Philippians 2 describes this, right? You know this passage. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is what it means for everything to be summed up in Christ. Some will submit to him during their lifetime. They will repent of their sins. They will come to him in faith. They will obey him. And others will submit to him and bow the knee at judgment. They will bow before him as Lord and as King. They will recognize their sin and their wrongdoing, and they will enter into eternal judgment for that. And so what Paul is telling us here is that everything finds its point and its summation in Jesus Christ. He's the focal point of everything. He's the main actor in God's drama. He's the one that brings it all to a resolution. Everything makes sense through him. This is the window through which we begin to make sense of what's going on in the world. It's through Jesus Christ. And so if that's the the final act, if that's the goal, if that's what everything is moving toward, then I think the natural question for us is, what role do you and I play in this drama? What are we doing here? How do we fit into that ultimate end? We're on stage right now. So how are we supposed to to play our role? What are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to act? Well, verses 11 and 12 tell us exactly how we fit into this drama. Look at verse 11, the beginning there. In him, we have obtained an inheritance. Now, let me kind of adjust your reading of that a little bit. That actually is probably better translated to say that we are God's inheritance, not that we've received an inheritance from him, although that is true, but this is actually saying that you and I are God's inheritance. 
It's like we're trophies of his grace. We belong to him. Our lives exist for him. We are the result of the work of Christ. And it describes that even further in verse 11. We're we're his inheritance. Why? Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. We've been chosen in Christ. We've been adopted into his family. We've been redeemed and forgiven to be his inheritance. And he has done all of that work in us for a specific purpose. Why? Verse 12. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. This is it. This is what you and I exist for. This is why you're on stage this morning. This is why you live your life this week. So Paul's not calling us specifically to worship God and to praise him here with our voices. He's actually saying the reason you were saved, the reason that you have been redeemed is to bring praise and honor to his name. Your very existence as a redeemed person is meant to direct attention and praise back to him. In other words, what Paul is saying here is that you do not exist for you. I do not exist for me. We exist, we're on this stage to direct attention to him and for his honor and glory. This is exactly how God talks about Israel in the Old Testament. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, could he be any clearer? For my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. The only just thing in the universe is for God to receive honor and glory. That's what righteousness means. He is deserving of glory and honor for who he is and for what he has done. But man, this gets to the heart of our fallen condition, right? How often do we live our lives as if I exist for me? It's my life. I will determine what morality is. I will determine how I want to live. How often do we become the center of our own universe? And we may never state it so boldly, but everything about my life is structured and geared in a way that tries to get satisfaction and praise for me. I don't even think about how God has designed things to work and how he is deserving of glory and honor. And when we do that, when we try to steal his honor and make this life about me rather than him, it's like putting my color-by-number painting up next to the Mona Lisa and asking everyone to rejoice in who I am and what I've done. It's insane. So how do we properly live our lives so that he receives the praise and the honor that he's due? How do we live with the grain of the universe? Because it's all headed this direction with Jesus Christ as the summary and the goal and the focal point, deserving of praise and glory. Let me give you two ways here. The first thing we do is we just need to recognize the beauty and the glory of who he is and what he's done. Recognize the magnificence of his character and of his cross work. 
rejoice in what Jesus has done in the gospel. Listen, if you think about Jesus as the main actor in this drama, the one who, through whom everything makes sense, the role that he has played in this is worthy of our adoration. It's a, it's a transcendent experience to watch a very gifted, talented actor play his part. You forget that they're acting. And it's a joyful experience to watch that. Jesus perfectly fulfilled the role that he was supposed to play. And it is a thing of beauty to behold, to watch, and to worship. He brings the excellency of the triune God to bear. His grace and truth come together, and we behold that, and we see the glory of God. And the proper response is to recognize that and to rejoice in it. And to do that is simply to align yourself with reality as it is. This is how things work. Everything is going to find its resolution in him and it's headed toward him. He's the main point anyway, so bow the knee now. Rejoice now. Worship him now. That's the first way. Recognize the beauty and the glory of his character and of his cross work. And the second way is to reflect his character in our lives today. To worship him the first way for what he's done and then to allow that worship to change us so that our lives properly reflect his character each and every day, the lifestyle we live. This is the whole burden of the book of Ephesians. This is what Ephesians is going toward. This is the point of the book. Listen to chapter four and verse one. You can flip over there. It's probably a page over in your Bible. But our walk, our lifestyle, is meant to put him on display, to put his grace on display. Verse 1 of Ephesians 4, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk, to live your lifestyle, to be in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Your lifestyle should be putting on display the glory of Jesus Christ. So what does this, practically speaking, look like? Let me show you a couple of things from Ephesians 1.3 and then make those connections to to 4.6. Did you know that there is a certain disposition, a way of dealing with people that comes naturally to one who has experienced redemption and forgiveness of sins? When you have gotten that vertical grace, it comes naturally, it ought to come naturally for you to give that to others, to mimic that, to reflect that into your daily life. We talked last week at length about the freedom that we have from sin, the redemption that we have, the forgiveness. Our sins have been canceled. They have been wiped away. We committed cosmic treason against God, and God in Christ has graciously forgiven us. That... If you stop and think about that, that should fundamentally change how you deal with people and how you respond to people. It gives shape to our lives and our personal relationships to live in light of the forgiveness of sins that we have. How do I know that's true? Ephesians 4.32. For some reason, I think of this verse as a kid's verse. I don't know why. Probably because it's one of the first ones you memorize when you're a small child. But think about the profound truths that are here. Be kind to one another, 
tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Why? Why live that way? As God in Christ forgave you. Vertical kindness from God, vertical forgiveness of sins, creates horizontal kindness and forgiveness. You cannot claim to know Jesus Christ and withhold forgiveness and kindness and tenderheartedness toward another believer, toward another person. You don't really understand forgiveness. You're not living and walking worthy of the calling with which you have been called there. But Paul keeps going. Read on into chapter 5. Look here. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. We've received adoption into God's family. We've received grace from him. So therefore, man, I want to be like that. I want to act like he does in my daily life. I mean, you know this is true. If you have kids, children act like their parents. And sometimes it's funny and sometimes it's horrifying as a parent. But Paul says here, this should be unsurprising for us. If we're children of God, this should come naturally. We've been adopted by him. Therefore, we love one another. Look at verse 2. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Our lifestyle must be marked by love because we have been shown unbelievable love. But what if I don't feel like it? What if I don't want to? Well, I would say at least one of the answers to that, and that's the dilemma we all face, right? I just don't feel like it. I don't really enjoy being around this person. What do we do? Well, the motivation comes from the benefits we've received. I mean, that's where Paul grounds it here. Be kind. Be forgiving. Why? Because you've been forgiven. Walk in love because Christ has loved you and he gave himself up for you. The theology translates into very, very practical ways of dealing with people. And it continues to flow out. Look at verse 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. Why? As is proper among saints. As those who have been called out, saints, the holy ones, separated from sin, through the work of Christ, we walk in a certain way. This impacts our sexual ethics, our material desires, what we want for material things. This is proper fitting among saints. To live according to our new identity in Christ, we walk appropriately and ultimately that puts Christ on display. It puts his work and his grace on display. So when we live this way, chapters 4 to 6, it takes us back to chapters 1 to 3, makes our calling clear, and then we become imitators. We, we live into our new adoption. We put Christ on display. We are a proper reflection of the grace that has been shown to us. And that's our role. That's what we're here for. We are actors on a stage. What lines are we supposed to say? What 
movements and actions are we supposed to do, all of it is meant to put the main actor on display. All of it is meant to direct everyone else's attention to him and to his beauty and to his worth. The only part that you and I play is a part that wants the spotlight to be on Jesus. It's all about him. Ultimately, everything's about him anyway, so let's live in line with that now. He is the point of the whole play. He's the summation. He's the centerpiece. Let's align our lives with that because we have been shown grace. Let's pray. Father, we are amazed at your plan and your purposes. We're amazed that we get to play a small part in this and that that we do hold your attention. We are tiny, but we are given much. We're both important and completely insignificant in the grand scheme of things. And there's great joy in that. That's how we were designed to be, Father. We're designed to be images to be copies, to be reflectors, to be mirrors that point back to you and your character and your glory. And so I pray that we would rejoice in who you are and what you've done, and then that we would reflect you in daily life because of the grace that we have received. Thank you for that grace. It's in Christ's name we pray.